Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. So this morning we're going to be taking a closer look in Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Look at the first 12 verses. So if you have your Bible or you're looking at an app, you can jump there. This is part of a larger series for us in the Sermon on the Mount, where week by week, we feel like one of the important ways that the Word of God shapes us as a community is for us to take enough time consistently in the Scripture to get some of the bigger pictures of things that God has to say versus just jumping from one idea to another idea week to week. And and so if you've been coming here for a few months or uh, have a particularly good memory, you might you might notice, actually the likelihood that you notice I know is small, but I'm tipping you anyway. Um, we, we looked at this same passage from Matthew 12 back in October uh, in our third message in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. And so what does Matthew 12 have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? It's just this. Jesus practices what he preaches. And when we look at what Jesus has to say and what he has to teach, we find it lived out in his lifestyle. And so we're going to be taking a deeper dive back into Matthew 12 because it's worth looking at again because it brings into focus for us the difference between Jesus's perspective and practice of what righteousness means and the way that the Pharisees and religious leaders of his time taught. So last Sunday, if you weren't here, you didn't get a chance to see it. Uh, you can check it out on our podcast. We looked in Matthew chapter five and we saw how Jesus taught a different perspective on righteousness than the religious leaders of his time did. That instead of just a list of things not to do or things that we have to do, he points us towards actually being children of our Father in heaven, sharing God's heart and living it out in all the things we do in our lives. And it's an outgrowth of him saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But I'm hoping this morning that we'll see that there's more at work here than only having our own hearts be clean and having what's on the inside match what's on the outside. But that Jesus' view and approach to righteousness includes and is really about not only having a clean heart, but also having compassionate action towards others, particularly people who can't repay us. That loving our neighbor is vital to loving the Lord our God. And so... Um, we're contrasting an approach to righteousness, an idea of doing what God wants that's primarily about looking like we've done all the right things and recalibrating towards being people who express God's heart. And I was, I was reminded of that this week. I got together with Brian for lunch on Wednesday to talk about some of the things here in the church. And I had forgotten to bring the lunch that I packed. And so, all right, I'll pick up some lunch. So I got on my Panera app on my phone, ordered up myself some creamy tomato soup and a bread bowl, which is excellent if you haven't had that before, and went over, met Brian. We had a nice lunch. And and it so happens that my wife got on her phone through our shared email account the notification of what I had ordered for lunch. And she congratulated me on making a healthy choice, right? I didn't drive through five guys and get a burger and fries. I got, you know, something. And And so I'm looking good, aren't I? Right, guys? Right, And she didn't know that I had paid cash at Munster Donut 
earlier that morning. And, and so an approach to righteousness that's based on keeping our, checking off the right boxes and looking right really lends itself towards a gap between how we make ourselves look on the outside and what's really going on on the inside. And Jesus even says, you can end up like a whitewashed tomb if you live like that. So let's ask him to help us. Lord, we pray, God, that we wouldn't be people who are just trying to figure out the minimum that we have to do to keep you somehow pleased with us. But Lord, we pray that you transform us from the inside out, to people who share your heart and express you in this world. Because Lord, our great love, our desire, our delight is to know you more and more and to walk close with you. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's the heart of what we're getting at here, that believing in Jesus has got to translate into believing like Jesus did. And that living for Jesus has got to look like living like Jesus as well. And so let's take a look at Matthew chapter 12. Now, in October, when we looked at this, we also looked at the first few verses that come right before Matthew 12, which coincidentally would be in which chapter? Chapter 11. The last bit of chapter 11, Jesus makes this beautiful invitation. He says to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And he's making a statement about how burdensome legalistic righteousness is for people who are trying to please God. And chapter 12 starts out with Matthew giving us some examples of how Jesus brings the freedom from that legalistic burden and indeed how burdensome those responsibilities can be. So here's what the scripture says. At that time, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, when they saw his disciples picking grain and eating it, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He's saying, don't you know how the Bible describes what David did when he and his companions were hungry? King David in the Old Testament. Verse 4, it says that David entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but it was only okay for the priests to do that. Verse 5, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, quote, desecrate the day, unquote, they're doing work on the Sabbath themselves, and yet they're innocent. I tell you, Verse six, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, and here Jesus is quoting Hosea chapter six, verse six. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. If you'd known what these words mean, what God was getting at when he said this in Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, then you would not have condemned the innocent for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Meaning, is it okay to do the work that you have to do to heal someone? It is a miracle on the Sabbath. Verse 11 says, Jesus said to them, 
If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So let's take a look at the contrast here between the two perspectives, the Pharisees' perspective and Jesus' perspective. You see on the left, things that the Pharisees said. On the right, some of the things Jesus said. So the Pharisees are saying, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. What's Jesus' response? He says, wait, haven't you read what God said? Haven't you read what the scripture is really getting at? What Jesus is bringing according to Jesus, is what God has always intended. He's not, Jesus is not saying this is something new and different. It's not that was the old way and now there's a different way. He's saying, no, you've misunderstood what God has always intended. And so then they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus quotes the scripture and he says to them, oh, I'm sorry, I don't want to skip over chapter 12, verse 6. He's saying, haven't you read? And then he says, one greater than the temple is here. Because on the one hand, he's saying, this is what God's always intended. And then he says, but how much more now that God is here himself? This is what God's always intended. But how much more now that God has come in person? And so to the particulars, they add, there's these two challenges, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus's answer is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What's God's heart? And his conclusion is, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And then there's the response. The Pharisees go out and plot to kill Jesus because they can't stand that he's the Lord, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's threatening the thing that they value more than God himself. So we're going to focus in in the bit of time we have left, I think, on two main points. I just want to explore for us the practical implications of what it looks like for us to be people who try to live out what Jesus is saying and doing here. First kind of question for us would be, what are the, what are the implications of one greater than the temple being here? And the other thought that we'll try to get some time into is, okay, so what about how God desires mercy, not sacrifice? And what does it mean for us when Jesus says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So taking a look at Jesus making this profound statement that one greater than the temple is here. It's so important that we not miss the presence and priority of God himself in our efforts to honor him in our religious actions. It's so important that we not miss God himself in our efforts and thoughts about what it looks like to serve him and to follow him. One greater than the temple is here. Here's what it means. That Jesus is, one, present, and two, greater. Jesus is Lord, and he's here. This reality that Jesus is present and greater That's the lens that has got to define our perspective, our priorities, how we look at, how we see things, how we evaluate what we're doing. 
can't be, how do I look? How do I come across? It's got to be there's this one named Jesus who's present and greater than everything else. And so Jesus is meant to be, he's got to be the focus of our attention and our worship. It's not the do's and don'ts. It's not our liturgies and activities. It's the presence of Jesus that matters more than all. It's true personally for each of us as individuals. It's true in the rhythms of our family lives. And it's true for what makes us a church and a congregation, a family of faith together. The presence and priority of Jesus has to supersede, take higher priority and value to, well, all the other stuff that we're tempted to think should matter more. For the Pharisees, that temple, the temple was sacred. It was sacred to them because it symbolized the presence of God in their midst. But there was even more to it than that, though. It was a source of national pride for them because you can point to it and say, we built that. Look look what we did for God. And in our lives, the temple can easily represent the activities of things that we try to do for God rather than the presence of God himself. And I think as believers here in our culture, we've got our own equivalents for the temple. There's many ways that we can set up things that end up competing with the presence of the Lord himself for priority and for attention. We can value them so much that we miss God himself when he shows up. I think sometimes that can be kind of the literal temples. I mean, church buildings. Have you noticed church buildings in the U.S. are, generally speaking, really nice? And it's easy to start to substitute the church building for the presence of God himself. Of course, we never do that here. Right, you know, and you might say, well, and it's tempting to have a certain comparative relativism, say, well, our building isn't as nice as some other people's church buildings, and that makes us more spiritual somehow. You know, that's, that's not really the way it works, right? Church buildings are the evidence that there's something in us that wants it to be nice for ourselves. Maybe it's not wrong but it's got to take a lower priority than Jesus himself and his heart. And so the kind of questions that we ought to ask ourselves are, how does how much money that we spend on ourselves and our building and our facilities compare to how much money we give away to the poor, that we invest in other nations, that we give into other kinds of work? Because when Jesus comes and says, one greater than the temple is here, we've got to ask, okay, How do we live our life individually, corporately, in a way that shows that the person of Jesus matters more than the physical trappings that create conveniences for ourselves? I mean, what would it mean if Jesus actually came and you started to feel as a couple that maybe, maybe the nice house that we were planning to build, we shouldn't build and we should instead have a lower budget house and give it away? If you had a friend who, who did that and said that, would that be threatening to you because of the house and the mortgage that you already have? This is where it can get kind of sticky among us. But when Jesus says one greater than the temple is here, he's exerting the truth. He's exerting this reality that when, when Jesus comes, he matters more than all the other things that we're tempted to point to or use as the indices for whether we're doing what God wants. What if Jesus challenged those things? 
What if even, well, another way that the temple can take priority over the presence of God is how we do church meetings. What we expect, like on a Sunday morning, what we expect when we come together. It's natural for us to get into certain rhythms and expectations where we think, okay, well, if we sing songs for a certain amount of time and we preach a certain amount of time and we do the children's ministry like we should, then we've had church. Then we've done church. But what if the Lord messes that up sometime? What if he actually comes and it, and it messes with what we're used to thinking? Does that mean that it's not church or does it mean that we valued the temple more than we did his presence? Individually, one of the idols that we can turn into a place that we go and worship is, is our love for our own personal happiness, personal fulfillment. It's very much an idol for our culture, and we are not immune. It's so natural for us as well. And so when Jesus comes and reminds us the one greater than the temple is here, it can shake and threaten the shrines to the idols in my life that put myself first instead of others. I, I heard those some of those echoes even while you were praying, Travis, you know, about our brothers and sisters in Nepal that are shaking some of these idolatrous shrines in my own heart uh, that put my own safety and my own convenience and my leisure ahead of the good news of Jesus Christ to all the earth. So I, I think this passage brings us a healthy challenge to watch out for our own expectations of what we want church to look like and what we wish faith would look like in our own lives and how we get to express it. Because Jesus here, he's not lining up with their expectations for what a genuine spiritual leader is supposed to look like and do and how he's supposed to behave. I mean, listen, Jesus is spending way too much time paying attention to broken people who are not influential and not nearly enough time with influential wealthy people in Jerusalem who really can change society. From the world's perspective, Jesus is not lining up with the way a real spiritual leader who's going to change the world should invest their time and their energy. He's not organizing a movement. There's zero administration to how Jesus is gathering his followers and doing things. I'm exaggerating. Hang in here. I'm caricaturing a situation. I'm in times being sarcastic at what I'm saying. Please don't extract one sentence from that recording uh, and take it out of context, right? But here on the Sabbath, look, right here in this passage, what's he doing on the Sabbath? He's strolling through the grain fields with a ragtag group of former fishermen and tax collector and so on in a rural, relatively insignificant part of the country. Look, if you're campaigning, you know, you, you would promote yourself differently. If you're trying to establish brand recognition, you would do it differently. Jesus is not dancing to that tune. And, and yet, when we look at how sort of the Christian industry in our culture values celebrity, it's a, it's a challenging contrast to the values that Jesus is expressing here. I mean, we, we've seen again recently more celebrity pastors taking a fall. And it's tragic and it's harsh and it, it's heartbreaking for us. And, and yet, if we don't pause and question the system that 
sets celebrities onto a pedestal, we're missing something. Whether it's celebrity pastors or celebrity worship leaders, the fact that we value celebrity says something still needs to be converted in our own hearts and souls. Because these kinds of scandals, and we build people up with this oversized public persona, and what's on the inside, it's it's not larger than life. It's just human. But we have this outsized, supersized public persona and personality, image, and celebrity. Um, we can end up with such a gap with a tragically different internal reality. That's not how Jesus lived. That's not what Jesus modeled. When we, when we set up the, the celebrity ideal of prominent Christian leadership and Christian leaders, we're doing the opposite of what Jesus did because we sort of, we reversed the reality of the incarnation. In the incarnation, something so much more invisibly awesome than we can possibly comprehend clothed itself in human form. Scripture says that all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, here in this passage, is being so dramatically underestimated all the time. They don't even recognize that one greater than the temple is here. They see, here's an ordinary guy, and what's inside, the inner life, is so much more than shows on the outside. Jesus is not the Wizard of Oz. Some of us are old enough to remember the the movie, The Wizard of Oz, like the original back when, and that your parents would let you stay up for just part of it so you never really got to the end. And and there, there's the part where the little dog Toto grabs a hold of the Wizard of Oz curtain and pulls it back. And he's been, you know, the great and impressive smoke and fire and lights and loudspeaker presentation of the Wizard of Oz. And then it's suddenly revealed that there's just this ordinary guy behind the curtain. And and he speaks out through the speaker, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Jesus was completely the opposite of that. So approachable, so accessible. And the incarnation is God coming to earth, being made flesh. And it seems so often that our, our cultural values infecting the church cause us to want to take ordinary humans and inflate them to superhuman. When what God does is he took all the fullness of divinity and he brought it in as a regular human like us. Jesus was all substance and no show about it. And it matters to us for the kind of church that we are here at Mercy Hill, that we're not pursuing a reputation in worldly terms that would be defined as successful if I can put successful in in quotes. It's not our goal to create, construct, and maintain programs that are attractive to every consumer in our market area. We're not competing with other churches for market share um, or favorable ratings and customer satisfaction. We operate on a different economy here. Um, A pastor named Eugene Peterson, he was the translator of The Message, a paraphrase of Scripture, says that no church can be regarded as a success by our cultural standards. Sadly, when I look around, I I see the church in North America largely being saturated with branding, marketing, and image consciousness. Um, My, yeah, and it's just, 
the case, an image-conscious congregation cannot be a faithful one. Not, not faithful to God in God's terms because we shift our evaluation to what do people think of us instead of what does God think of us. It's true for us individually and it's so true when we come together as a family. If we're attentive to our own image, it, it takes our attention away from being attentive to the Lord and really the honor of his name. Thanks. And there's a, a way in which marketing the work of God cheapens what it really is in its essence. Uh, it cheapens what God's really doing in local churches because we're tempted then to skew the message to fit what we think other people want to hear. And we also tend to try to make ourselves look a bit better than we really actually are. And, and so, um, next slide. There, I, I put a, pulled together a couple of quotes from Eugene Peterson that I thought would be helpful and relevant because of how they express what Jesus is living out here in Matthew 12, in Jesus's lack of recognition and yet what he's building with his disciple, we see these things are still true today. That the biblical fact is there are no so-called successful churches. Instead, there are communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world, in Munster, Indiana, and in Nepal, and in everywhere in between. And in these communities of sinners, the Holy Spirit gathers them and he does his work in them. And when we think about what is church, what's Mercy Hill? We're an embarrassingly ordinary. We're we're a congregation of embarrassingly ordinary people through whom God chooses to make himself present in the world. And so for us, when we look at Jesus and the way that he's defying the religious expectations of his time, it matters that we draw our, our steps in a way that causes us to dance with Jesus instead of marching to the metronome of the temple. There's something about the rhythm of God's heart that Jesus is expressing that has got to define our individual and our corporate life together. It matters how we structure the church here, how we do our leadership, how we build culture together so that it emphasizes this reality. One greater than the temple is here. And he's here when we gather on a Sunday. And he's here on Tuesdays, whether we're gathered in this building or not. Yeah, Pam and, and Ron and I were talking this morning. Uh, Pam has such a heart for prayer. And she was wondering if it's okay to start a prayer meeting at her house on Thursday nights each week. What do you think? Is that okay? Should we bless her in doing that? Maybe some of you want to come and be part of that. But wait, wait, it's not happening in this building. Does that actually make it a church activity if it's not here in the building? And and it wasn't my idea. And it wasn't something that the elders in one of our elders meetings said, let's approach Pam and ask her to please do this on our behalf as the leadership of the church. No, it's it's how the Holy Spirit works in this community of embarrassingly ordinary people that he pleases to display his presence among and make himself known, that the Pam opening her home on Thursday nights is part of where the presence of God comes and one greater than the temple is here. Are you, are you hearing this? It matters about who we are. Look, if you want to just come to church, you're going to be marching to a different rhythm 
than how this family really dances together. The, the reality is Jesus is present and he's greater. He's present and he's greater than the pastor. He's present and he's greater than the leadership team of the church. He's present and greater than any of the meetings that we have together. It's his presence. It's his greatness that makes us who we are. We don't limit or measure that by the temple or by whatever rituals we prioritize. Um, and so it means here we're not going to use the language of success. We want to use the language of faithfulness, health, obedience, what honors the Lord. And, and as we do that, uh, and I, I apologize for the time. Would you bear with me for, for a few more minutes? Here's the thing. As long as no parent goes downstairs to get your kid, they'll be okay for another 10 minutes. But when parent number one goes down, it all goes down in a hurry from there. Okay, so let's just hang with me because there's a second half here of what Jesus is saying that gets really practical for us and how we do church together. Jesus says, if you not understood what was written, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have been doing it differently. Did you see him say that? And he says, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And there's some very practical implications for us as this community of embarrassingly ordinary people that God pleases to display himself in. The fact that one greater than the temple is here has got to find an expression in mercy, not religious observance, And even in doing good on the times that we normally think are supposed to be set aside just to worship God. Because doing good is worshiping the Lord. And so when when scripture says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's he's not referring specifically to self-denial, but to the religious offerings that the people brought to the temple. He's saying, I desire mercy, not this repeated ritualistic offering set up that you're bringing to the temple. And so when I talk about stepping to the rhythm of God's heart rather than marching to the metronome of the temple, it has to find itself working in lining up with what God desires. What does he want? What's on his heart? What does he want? And Jesus is saying it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. People are more important than sheep. Amen. Right? Now, it's kind of easy for us when you say, well, yeah, but I don't have any sheep. How many people keep sheep? Right? You know, we don't have a lot of sheep, but how many people have a water heater in your house? Right? So, whom among you, paraphrasing what Jesus said, who among you, if your water heater exploded on a Sunday morning, would not stay home and try to contain the damage instead of going to church that morning? Right? You know, okay. Uh, that's pretty straightforward. That's the basis of his argument. Look, if your sheep falls into a pit, you're not just going to let it die. You lose the sheep. You take it out. You take care of it. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do things that are good for other people on the Sabbath. Okay. So if my water heater blows up, I'm phoning it in uh, and taking care of the mess in the house, right? Uh, for each of us, that seems to make sense. Now, what if you're back in your car out your driveway and you find out that your neighbor's water heater just exploded, but you're on your way to church? Do you say, ooh, too bad, bro. I'll be praying for you. See you this afternoon. And keep driving. Or do you park the car, 
you know, send your wife and kids to church and you get out, you get your pipe wrench out of the garage and you go help your neighbor. I, I, some of us being here on Sunday morning is such a part of our sacrifice, our religion that showing mercy can't factor in. We'll show mercy the rest of the week, but on Sunday mornings, I go to church. How ironic that the, the point where the focus of our worship could become the very thing that prevents us from expressing God's heart in the world. And, and as, a, as an eldership team, we've been really challenged about this since early December. Uh, we, we had an elders meeting. Five of the seven of us were there. And we felt like the Lord really started to speak to us, to tweak our perspective and to challenge us to be more concerned about his desire to, for mercy than we are for maintaining our meetings and Sunday morning. And I may be a little wrong in my time estimate, so so hang with me here, okay? Because compassionate action is at the heart of what Jesus says God desires. I desire mercy. It's got to be lived out. It's not just a sentiment. It's expressed in action. How does it get worked out? Well, compassionate action is vital to our own prophetic identity. And so it means for us, Sunday mornings are fair game for serving others. It's got to be. Now, we've got some heroes downstairs right now who are serving the rest of us. But if the way that we're serving is only for one another on Sunday mornings, we're missing the larger slice of God's heart for the world. We should be asking questions about how, how are we being good news in this community all through the week, but also on Sunday mornings. What does it look like? And, and so... Uh, since that time in December, we've continued praying. We, we've talked the idea with many of the life share leaders. Some of you have heard about it from your life share leaders. We've been kind of leaking around and it seems, feels like, yeah, this seems good to the Holy Spirit that we would begin a process this year where we start to send out Mercy Hill people on Sunday mornings to be a blessing here and around in this community where we not only gather together, but that we're being the church by being sent as much as by being gathered. And so on any given Sunday, what might it look like to be doing good on the Sabbath? Well, uh, great. Um, it means that there would be some number of us, a dozen, maybe two dozen. Last week, it was four. Four ladies from the church who left the meeting here to go visit one of our members who was in the hospital. It's a great start. It's a good seed that expresses God's heart and his desire. Not just we'll be praying for you when we're all together, but we're coming over to be with you, to visit you. Jesus said, I was sick and you cared for me. And so Sunday mornings are fair game for this. We'd love to see, let's, let's imagine 12 or 15 people from Mercy Hill on a Sunday morning, going with your families, with your kids, somebody's got a guitar and you go into the nursing home together. And we're bringing a touch of God's love to residents who can't get out, can't go anywhere, and who aren't getting visited because the people who would normally visit them on Sunday mornings are where? They're all at church. Right? And, and so having a mix of, well, let me stick with the program. I'll be quicker. Next. Right? It would mean for each of us, not that any of us would ever stop being here most of the time. Sunday morning, we don't want to give up the habit of meeting together. The, the idea would be more that 
maybe once a month or once every couple months, maybe four times a year, you, with some members of your family or on your own, depending on what your family permits, would be taking a Sunday morning time when we're normally meeting together and being part of a group of us who are out and about doing good somewhere. And some of that would be very specific, consistent commitments. Like if we're going to start serving in some nursing homes, we want to be consistent with that and build relationships through that kind of consistency. But another way of doing good on the Sabbath is for us to be spontaneous in the context of existing relationships. If your neighbor's water heater blows up, you can call a few other guys from church on Sunday morning who know more about plumbing than you do and help them together. Uh, It can mean that when an international student needs to move apartments, uh, that instead of us scrambling to find people who can help on a Saturday, we get a quality team together on Sunday morning and we go together in the name of Jesus and we bless them. It means that when a a non-Christian woman that's been settled by the refugee uh, assistance through the Welcome Network in our area, you know, is calling and asking for help. And instead of us scrambling to, to find four guys who can come on Wednesday after work, no, that doesn't work. Maybe Thursday, can we make it work? We say, no, in the name of Jesus, we're going to go on Sunday morning and there'll be six of us to do a quality job of fixing the issue on our house. Is that making sense? Right? Uh, it means that, it doesn't mean that for any of us, we stop coming on Sundays and are always out. But we're a community, we're a family together. And with 200 people in this place, it is not a ridiculous idea to think that 20 of us on any given Sunday can be out doing good in the name of Jesus. And the others of us are aware of that and we're praying together for it and we're saying this is who we are in the name of Jesus. And so how do we get, how are we going to get there? Because what I'm sharing with you is not a plan. It's not a program. It's a burden from the Lord that we want to grow into. And we wanted to share it with you kind of in the absence of having a sign up here or here's the program and these are the places and ways we're going to do it because we want God to change who we are in here so that we live it well out there. We're not asking anybody to sign up for a program. But for us to move in this direction, it is going to take each of us starting to look and see with new eyes for the needs that are around us to go ahead and respond to something that the Lord may be stirring in your heart for a way to help that could be a consistent ongoing way of serving the poor or needy or neglected in the community around us or be willing to be bold to ask for some help to respond, you know, you know, as, as recently, you know, as quickly as a couple of days before Sunday to be able to gather some folks and do it. Uh, we're not expecting everything to be centrally organized through some kind of church administration. We're saying this is an expression of our body. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And because one greater than the temple is here, we're going to dance to his, the rhythm of his heart rather than the metronome of our meetings. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to conclude by sharing communion together and, and by praying. And so if I could ask the, the folks who are going to pass that, just start at the back today, guys, and just pass them in the back and let it work its way forward. And... And while that's coming forward, I'd like to lead us in prayer, uh, but I don't want you to think that I'm doing all the praying for us as we do, okay? So join in. We'll, there'll probably be a bit of a pause between when I become quiet and when all the baskets make their way up front. But when everybody's received uh, the communion elements, we'll take them all together. Dear Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us 
your willingness to come and just shake up our our templates, our formula, our routines, some of our assumptions about how we uh, how we ought to be able to structure and do our lives and our times. Lord, we pray that you would use us, God, individually and together uh, as a living temple, God, made up out of living stones, each of which is responsive and expressive to you. Lord, I, I pray uh, that we would be, in ways that are genuine and legitimate, expressions of your heart, Lord. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we prioritize ourselves, uh, our own happiness and fulfillment over what at times can be the very real cost of lifting up your name first. God, we thank you for the example of brothers and sisters throughout the world who are serving you in such challenging situations. But Lord, for us right here, would you receive all of us? God, like all of my heart, soul, and strength, Lord. Or would you come and inhabit each of our lives, God? Or that we wouldn't simply come and visit you periodically, but we'd walk with you, serve you, know you, live with you, as well as for you. Lord, we're so thankful that on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread and you gave thanks and you broke it. You said to your disciples, you gave it to your disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, you took the cup, and you gave thanks and you gave it to your disciples saying, this is the blood of a new covenant, your own blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, as we receive these simple, ordinary elements today. It's just bread, it's just juice. Lord, we recognize that one greater than the temple is here. That someone so much greater than bread and juice is here. Someone so much greater than our own agendas and routines and preferences is here. Jesus, thank you for your broken body, for your shed blood. Thank you for the empty tomb and for your throne in glory in your promised return. Thank you in Jesus' name.